Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll be starting with verse 17. And I'm going to read through chapter 5, verse 2. So Ephesians 4, 17 to 5, 2. The Apostle Paul says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 17, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. It's uh, January 3rd. This passage teaches us two things. It's a perfect passage for us to come to and to let teach us this morning because it teaches us two things. Number one, we need to change. Number two, we can. Why is that a good thing on January 3rd? Well, this is the time of year when people start thinking about, okay, how do I need to change? We call that New Year's resolutions. Um, Now, generally, I'm against New Year's resolutions, but only because they're usually godless and faithless. And they're self-righteous and self-reliant and empty, and they fall flat in a week. And they leave us with a bad taste in our mouths. Many of us have a bad taste in our mouths for many, many, many years of um, past failed New Year's resolutions. And so the temptation is to become cynical and to say, oh yeah, I'm, I've, I've grown out of that. I'm beyond that. 
I'm a Christian. I don't believe in New Year's resolutions. New Year's resolutions are, you know, are pagan and godless and, and they always fall flat. So I'm not, I, you know, I, I, I'm too mature for that. No, you're just too cynical for that. And faithless. Because God says you need to change. But he also says you can. So what are you going to do this year? As I was praying, I was thinking about looking backwards and thinking of all the ways that we need to repent. All the ways we could, we could spend a lot of time thinking about our failures in this past year, let alone this past week. Think of the failures of the past year. Think of the sins. Think of the rebellion. Think of the ways that we've drifted, the ways that our hearts have grown cold, the way that we've, we've grown callous. Think of the ways that you've changed for the worse in the past year. Think of them with honesty. We also look forward. And we look forward with faith. Never cynicism, never unbelief, but we look forward with faith. And this passage calls us to both. It calls us to look at ourselves, to look at our lives now, to see where we need to change, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the cross of Christ, to do it. This passage, Scripture says, James says, Scripture is like a mirror that you hold up to yourself and you look at it and you see yourself in it. And the wise man sees himself in it, goes away, doesn't forget, but he does it. The gospel is given to us to change us, to make us so that we do change, so that we see ourselves and change. And that's not against the gospel. That's what the gospel is for. So let's look at this passage and see what it says to us. He says in verse 17, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, this is what the Lord himself commands and says to us, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. There's a couple of things to, to notice here. What's he mean when he, when he says walk? He's talking about how you live your life. He's not talking about how you put one foot in front of the other. He talk, talks about how you live the details of your life. It's a word that means to walk around. It's kind of the, the word that means as you go through all the details of your life, you go through the whole cycle of your life. You wake up in the morning, you do your routine, you go to work, you do your stuff, you come home, and then you go to bed, and you do it all over again, and you keep doing this cycle of walking around on the earth. That's what he means. He's talking about all the details of your life. So this is a very practical passage that teaches us how to live. But he says, no longer walk just as the Gentiles walk. How many of you are Gentiles? A Gentile is someone who's not a Jew. I want to see your hands, everyone. Is Carol a Jew? Ah, there you go. <laughs> and Bob's not here today. Michael Foster is part Jew, so there you go. We got another non-Gentile. What's he mean? Walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk. Often when Scripture uses the word Gentiles this way, it's talking not about ethnicity. It's talking about pagan. Gentiles, unbelieving Gentiles, people who don't know Christ, people who don't have the Scriptures, people who don't have God's Word, who don't have God's law, who don't have God's Spirit, 
people who don't know Christ. And so he says, this I say and affirm together with the Lord, Jesus Christ himself commands us this, that you live your life and the details of your life no longer like a pagan. Now, what's, what's striking about that? What's striking about that is he has to say it. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. He's talking to us. He's talking to Christians. Our obedience is never automatic. Your obedience is never automatic. Get it out of your mind that if you're just a Christian, if you just had more faith, then your obedience would be automatic. Our obedience is never automatic. If obedience is automatic, then most of the Bible is useless for you and nonsense because it's commands that assume it's not automatic, that assume it's hard work, that it's work to be done that you must do by the power of the Holy Spirit, but you must do it. God doesn't obey for us. He does give us his Holy Spirit to help us obey, but he doesn't do it for us. He commands us to stop doing some things and start doing other things. So he says, stop living like pagans. How many of us live like pagans? The church is full of people who live like pagans. And where does it start? It doesn't necessarily start, uh, probably never starts, in outward, gross, you know, flagrant, open rebellion and sin. Look where it starts. Verse 17, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer, you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. It starts with how you think. What does futility mean? It's emptiness, it's vanity, it's uselessness, it's... This is how pagans think. And every one of us is thoroughly tempted to think like pagans think. This is what we do. We build a firewall between our lives on Sundays, our lives as Christians, our lives when we're with Christian people, and all the assumptions that we suck in and the way that we live throughout the week. We, we're, we're very good at compartmentalizing and dissecting and never letting the way that we think as Christians bleed over into the way that we live. We're very good at sucking in the way that pagans think. And it's empty and it's foolish, and it's vain. It all starts with the, the futility of your mind. What assumptions, as you look forward to this year, as you look backwards on last year, look forward to this year, what assumptions have you bought into this year that need to be completely rejected? He goes on. They walk in the futility of their mind, verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, again talking about their mind, Unable to see the truth, unable to see the connections, unable to see reality as it is. Excluded from the life of God. Truly godless. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the hardness of their heart. You can look at each one of those lines. And Paul says each one of them for a reason darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, how often do you go through your life and go through your day as if God did not exist? 
truly godless. When you react to being sinned against, when you react to things not going your way, as if there was no God in heaven. I do this all the time, don't you? As if there was, as if nothing, as if none of it was true. Excluded from the life of God, as if we did not have life from God, as if God had nothing to do with anything. He says these pagans live excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So yeah, what they need is more education, right? They need they just need to be taught. That's not what he says. Because he says the ignorance comes from where? What's it say? It's due to the hardness of their heart. There is a willful, culpable, guilty ignorance that people cultivate because they hate God. Now, again, who's he talking to? He's talking to you and me. He's talking to us. And he, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, is compelled to say to us, stop living like pagans. Stop living like pagans. Stop thinking like pagans. Stop going through your life as if God doesn't exist, as if you don't know him. Stop cultivating willful ignorance. Stop hardening your heart. Where, where in your life, take this time right now to think about yourself and think about how you have cultivated ignorance. Cultivated ignorance of God's commands of you. Where you've just said, you know, I'm just not going to go there. I'm not going to think about the implications of this. Practically speaking in my life. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to act like I don't know anything about it. I, I'm going to, you know, there are passages of scripture that all of us probably avoid because we don't like what they say and we don't want to have to think about them. Right? What is that for you? Where has your hardness of heart caused you to be willfully ignorant of the ways of God? What does that lead to? Look at verse 19. And they, having become callous, now you all know what calluses are. All you kids know what calluses are. Calluses are the, uh, are the hard, kind of dead, tough, unfeeling skin that you get on your hands if and when you work. Right? And you can't feel them. They're callous. Hard, unfeeling. This is describing the heart of the person who's totally turned away from God. But this is us too, isn't it? We all have calluses where we've stopped feeling. Think back over the year. Think of things that used to bother you that don't bother you anymore. Sins that you used to be very aware of that you just kind of have decided to ignore now. You've called a truce. 
Verse 19, and they having become callous, where does that lead? What's it lead to? What's that look like? This is where it starts breaking out into your life, outwardly. They have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Futile thinking, empty, vain thinking, ignorance, cultivated ignorance, hardness of heart, callousness. Give yourself over. Surrender to sensuality. We think of sensuality purely as sexual immorality. That's not all that it means. It certainly means that. Sensuality is anything that we do that just cult, that, that focuses on our senses. It's, it's, I, you know, it's food. It's comfort. It's certainly illicit sex, pornography, all that kind of stuff. Where, do, where is your life sensuous? Where have you given yourself over, like a pagan, to sensuality? For the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. One of the translations says, for the practice of every kind of impurity with the continual lust for more. Perfect, perfect description of our culture. Nothing satisfies us. Nothing satiates us. We have to have more. Nothing quenches the thirst. Nothing fills the hunger. There is a continual lust for more, and that's the way sin is. Once, It's like drinking salt water. It makes you more thirsty, not less. Until you finally kill yourself on it. Who is he talking to? He's talking to us. And obviously, evidently, he's talking about us. Because what's he say? Stop it. No longer. If, if, if someone says to you, you may no longer do that, what's the assumption? That I am doing it. Or I have been. Or I'm prone to. Do you see yourself clearly through the light of this passage of Scripture? Do you see yourself clearly in the mirror? Or do you say, well, this obviously isn't talking about me, this is talking about pagans. Not me. This is talking about us. Examine yourself. But look where he goes next in verse 20. He says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. When you became a disciple of Jesus Christ, you didn't learn Christ. Christ, when you became a Christian, you became a learner, a disciple of Jesus Christ. You didn't learn that you could continue to live like that and it'd be okay. Now, contrary to what many people are teaching today. Okay? There's a lot of teaching that says repentance is nothing more than a change of mind about the claims of Christ. That faith is nothing more than Believing certain facts. And it has nothing to do, living the Christian life has nothing to do in and of itself with, uh, you know, obedience. I'm not making that up. You know, there are 
reputable um, seminary professors in high standing who teach that. But he says, but you did not learn Christ in that way. Verse 21, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, what's the assumption of that verse? What's the if mean? The assumption of that verse, verse 21, is that um, there are some of you who haven't. Who haven't heard him. He doesn't say heard of him, because all of you have heard of him, right? Even if this is the first time you've ever heard the, the name Jesus Christ. Well, there, you just heard it. You've heard of him. That's not what it says, is it? If indeed you have heard him vast difference between hearing of him and hearing him. Have you heard him? Have you been taught in him, by him? The only source of truth, Jesus Christ. There are people in this room who've not heard him. Who've not been taught in him. Or at least it looks like it. Because of your life. You did not learn Christ in this way. When you were taught by Jesus Christ, you weren't taught to live with a hard heart and a cultivated ignorance and a lust for sensuality and a continual greediness for more. You did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. Here's what you were taught. Verse 22. If you have come to know Jesus Christ truly, if you've heard him truly, if you've been taught in him truly, if you've learned him truly, here's what you were taught, verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, that old man, the old habits of life, patterns of life, living like a pagan, living like a Gentile, all of the stuff you used to do, all of the assumptions you used to have, You lay it all aside just like a dead corpse. The old self which is rotting, he says. Corrupted, rotting, putrefying. In accordance with the lusts of deceit. The lusts of deceit always kill you and make you rot. That's what he's saying. You lay it all aside. You have been taught that you lay all of that aside. And verse 23, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This goes back to the way that we think and how important it is that it be formed by Scripture, renewed by Scripture. And verse 24, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now that verse forbids us from being cynical about changing. You see it? He's not talking about justification here, okay? Justification is, is what we, when we talk about justification, we're talking about that when you stand before God and you stand before the judgment seat of God and you stand before the court bench of God in heaven, he looks at you and says, not guilty. That's justification. It happens by faith alone, in Christ alone. It's an instantaneous act. It's a declaration of God. He imputes transfers the righteousness of Jesus Christ onto you so that from here on out he deals with you as if you are just as righteous as Jesus Christ when it comes to his law. 
But that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is what we call sanctification. Living a holy life. Living like Jesus Christ. Being obedient to God. How do we know that? Well, we know that because he's talking about walking, verse 17. Like a a pagan or not. He's talking about how you live your life. But verse 24 says, Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In other words, you have the ability, the new creature that Christ has made you into, that God has made you into, has the ability to obey God. Not perfectly in this life, but significantly, powerfully, radically, deeply, lastingly. Because you have been recreated in the likeness of God, created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. All of the commands of Scripture rest on that assumption. All of the commands to Christians rest on that assumption. Which is where he goes. Look at verse 25. Therefore, the rest of this passage is a list of commands that we can obey because of what he just said. You've laid off the old self. You've been renewed in the spirit of mind. You've put on the new self. Therefore, here's what it looks like. Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Christians. Well, Christians don't lie, right? Right? So, how do you lie? Laying aside falsehood. And he's primarily talking about lying to one another as Christians. Because he says, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You're not members, you're not connected with, in a body with pagans. You're members of each other in the body of Christ in the church. So how do you lie? How do we lie to each other? What's the, the most obvious way that we lie to one another? As Christians, it's the facade, it's the veneer, it's the everything's okay with me, don't you dare assume there's anything wrong with me. I'm fine. But I suspect we lie to each other in all kinds of ways. The way that we lie, the ways in which we lie to one another show that we're faithless show that we don't believe that we need to change or we don't think we can. And so the default you know, defense mechanism position is to pretend that everything's okay. He says, lay it aside. Laying aside falsehood. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You know, if the, uh, if the liver has cancer... What's the use of the liver saying to the heart? Everything's fine. We're members of one another. We're connected to one another. We're part of a body. We're we're knit together 
and you go around lying to, if we go around lying to each other about the cancer spiritually, what are you doing? You're killing everybody else. Ultimately, don't lie to each other. You're connected to each other. You're members of one another. Speak the truth. Verse 26, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Not all anger is wrong, but yours is. (laughs) I mean, I bet it is, (laughs) right? Because there's not very much righteous anger in our hearts. Where's the... uh, Where is the place where you're holding on to anger, where you're holding a grudge, where you, we'll get to this later in a second when he talks about bitterness and all of that, but think of it here. Where do you cultivate and nourish and nurture and cherish your anger? I want you, I want you to actually think about it. What's he say? Be anger, be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now this is January. All right? When's the sun go down in January? Five thirty? You don't have much time, folks. I'm serious. If you have work to do today, and you've let the sun go down on your anger for even just a day. How about a week? How about a year? How about years? Do not let the sun go down on your anger one more time. Deal with it. Because if you don't, he says, you'll give the devil an opportunity, verse 27. What does that mean? What's the devil do? He's a thief who comes to what? To steal, kill, destroy. He's a liar. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy this church. And you swing open the doors and give him all kinds of opportunity to do so when you cultivate, nourish, cherish, hang on to your anger. That's what he says. If your life is a shambles, maybe it's because you've opened up the doors to the destroyer. Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Who's he talking to? Talking to us. Where do you steal? When does a thief stop being a thief? You could say a a thief stops being a thief when he stops stealing, but that's not true, is it? Because what he says is, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather must labor, There's the first step of stopping being a thief. You've got to work. But you can work like a thief. Why does a thief steal things? A thief steals things because he wants stuff for himself. And he wants to heap up his treasure. He He wants to get things to keep for himself. So you can work like a thief. So when do you stop being a thief? He says... He must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. That's when you stop being a thief. Why do you go to work in the morning? 
so that you can have stuff for yourself or so that you can have something to share. If you go to work in the morning just so you can have stuff for yourself, we're living like thieves. Stop it. How can you change that this year? Verse 29. We're going to have an opportunity in a minute to change that because we take the deacon's offering, right? Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word. So he goes through all these things. He, gets, he, he, he opens all the corners. Nothing's hidden. Nothing's out of bounds. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Now, I've always thought that that was a strange way of putting it. Words are like wild animals. You see how he says it? Let no unwholesome word break out of your mouth. Let no unwholesome word bust out. Let no unwholesome word come out. It's like a wild animal. You've got to keep it in there. You've got to keep the bars shut. All right, you've got to keep the bars shut. Don't let any unwholesome word burst out of your mouth. Think of it like a wild animal that you have to tame, that you have to keep in, that you have to hold back and do not let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth. The word is a rotten word. And we don't need to go into the list of what that looks like because every one of us knows what they are. How do you use rotten words? One thing you need to do is let no, let no unwholesome word. Think of it like a cage. Keep the lion in the cage. Don't let it out. Self-control, self-discipline. But where Jesus says, your words come from what? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's rottenness in your heart. You better believe it's going to bust out through your teeth and proceed from your mouth. And every time you say nasty things to your husband, to your wife, to your kids, to your brother, to your sister, to your boss, to your coworker, to whoever, and then afterwards you say, oh, I didn't mean it. Jesus says, of course you meant it. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. But only such a word, the only words you're allowed to let out, are words that are good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. So what is your, what is your, what kind of words come out of your mouth? Where does that come from? How is that living like a pagan? Did you learn Christ in that way? Did Jesus teach you to talk like that? Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. We're going to come back to that. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Look at verse 31. Bitterness. 
Are you a bitter person? Hard, sharp, biting, cutting. Are you wrathful? Brittle, under pressure. Do you snap? Do you lose your temper? Lose your flexibility and your kindness? Bitterness and wrath and anger. Does that describe you? Clamor. Constant fighting. Slander. Words that are designed to tear people down so that you can be exalted. Malicious. Are you just downright nasty? Mean? Spiteful? What would your husband say? What would your wife say? What would your kids say? What would your parents say? What would God say? Put it all away from you, he says. In verse, instead, verse 32, the opposites of all of that. Be kind, not bitter or wrathful, but kind to one another. Tender-hearted, not angry or clamorous, but tender-hearted. Not slanderous or malicious, but forgiving. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And there's the hope. So I said this passage teaches us two things. It teaches us, number one, we need to change. Number two, this passage teaches us three things. It teaches us we have to change. It teaches us how. And it teaches us that we can Right? Do you believe it? Very often, the reason we don't want to see our sin is because we have no hope whatsoever, no faith whatsoever, no confidence whatsoever that we'll be able to change at all. We're cynical, we're unbelieving, we're faithless. So we don't even want to see it. Well, you've seen it. What are you going to do? Are you going to look inward? Are you going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Are you going to be a pagan and a godless, you know, New Year's resolver? Or are you going to be a Christian? He says you can do it because, number one, verse twenty. For you've put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. But there's more hope. Verse 23, forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You've been forgiven. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. You're a beloved child of God, if you're his, if you're, if you're a Christian, if you've Come to him in repentance and faith. And verse 2, And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's who you are if you're a Christian. Beloved of God, beloved child, forgiven, 
Christ himself has sacrificed, sacrificed himself for you, renewed constantly in the spirit of your mind, you've been given a new self that's been made in the image of God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. How do you do that? By ignoring everything we've just said. The Holy Spirit is a person who can be grieved, and we're grieving him. No wonder our attempts at obedience are so flat, so gray, so powerless. The person that God has given us to strengthen us for our obedience, we've We've grieved him by doing all these things, all the things, living like an unbeliever, lying, giving yourself to sinful anger, stealing, failing to work hard, failing to share with those in need, letting rotten words come out of your mouth, failing to build up the people around you, being bitter and angry and malicious and slanderous, failing to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving. We've done all of these things. 